Brady. This is Club Hell. Thanks for coming, kids. Hey, Hello. This is Notes from the Back Row. A cinema podcast of commentary, questions, answers, dreams, fears, joy rides, hell rides, and so much more. So strap in for a veritable cinematic Coney Island of the mind. Hello and welcome to another episode of Notes from the Back Row, an alternative movie review podcast brought to you by a bunch of weirdos. What weirdos, you may ask? Well, back-row.com was co-founded by Veronica Dolginko and Jenna Ipkar, has a best boy named Carlo Vanstefout and a podcaster named Dan Gorman. Hello, my name is Dan Gorman. I am your projectionist again this episode. It is our Halloween episode, our October spectacular, horrific, hilarious, other H-word episode. If you would like to get into contact with Back Row, you can email us at backrowcineblog at gmail.com. On Twitter, we are Back Row Cineblog. On Facebook, we are Back Row Cineblog. And on Instagram, we are Back Row Cineblog. On back-row.com right now, you can find Notes from the Back Row, Episode 5, where Jenna and Veronica discuss the hype machine, movies that were hyped that they didn't find lived up to said hype. You can also find Veronica Dolginko's amazing article on Salo or the 120 Days of Sodom. It is called I Watched It So You Don't Have To. It is spectacular. The last time one of these went up, it was one of the site's most popular articles ever. You know you are interested in this movie. You've heard about it throughout the years. And Veronica watched it to analyze it and discuss it and maybe even recommend it. Jenna also wrote a double feature called The Dangers of Peer Pressure last summer and the party's over. So check all three of those things out at back-row.com. And without further ado, we will throw to Carlo, who is discussing a number of films in the same franchise. Horror movies are all about the franchises. Some of them go up to 10, 20 movies. I'm looking at you, uh, Witchcraft? Yes, Witchcraft. I'm looking at you, Witchcraft. There's like a hundred of you. Anyway, let's get into what he's talking about. Take it away, Carlo. Hello, Carlo here. So, every like September and October, uh, which I dub Halloween instead of Halloween. I just watched a shitload of horror movies, uh, especially this year. I barely watched any horror movies throughout the year, but then as soon as September started, I figured might as well work on my watch list, watch as much horror movies as I can, uh, and get burned out on them again for another year. So what I want to do is talk about some of the best ones that I watched. Not in like a top 10 kind of way, just sort of cherry picking uh, the ones that stuck with me the most. And one 
franchise that I finally got into is the Scanners franchise. Uh, I'm sure most people know about Scanners, uh, the original at least, but I also watched Scanners 2 and Scanners 3 so far. I didn't have time to get into the Scanner Cop movies. There are two of those as well. Basically, all of these movies have been direct-to-video, except for the first one, which was a big hit. Gave them an excuse to make sequels. And I'm always curious to see what they come up with in those sequels. So, Scanners, the first one. I would like to scan all of you in this room, one at a time. I must remind you that the scanning experience is usually a painful one. Sometimes resulting in nosebleeds, earaches, stomach cramps, nausea, sometimes other symptoms of a similar nature. At this point, I'd like to call for volunteers. The Mind Force. Scanners. Their thoughts can kill. It's not the first time that I've tried watching it, but it's the first time that I've really gotten into it. I felt like deeply in love with it this time. It's the kind of movie where people, Cronenberg in general, people have this notion of him being a cold and distant director. There's not a lot of heart in his characters and it's true for the most part, but in Scanners it actually works in its favor, I felt like. Uh, it's probably a movie you have to be in the right mood for and I guess it just clicked for me this time. I thought it was just amazing. Um, even like the cinematography, so very typical early Cronenberg, uh, like you'll see in Rabbit and Shivers, uh, like that gold Quebecian landscapes. And I feel like most of his sets, he doesn't dress them up at all. Uh, yeah, it just totally clicked for me this time. Michael Ironside as well as Daryl Revock, uh, amazing performance and the way the movie builds like i was just so invested in the plot as well and like i said it builds to a climax that's so like nihilistic and gruesome and it just it stayed in my head for like a really long time so then i figured i might as well watch the sequels as well got right into scanners 2 scanners 2 which is called the new order going to save the society, we're going to have to This came out actually like a full decade after the first Scanners. Why bother at that time? Was Scanners still hot enough in 1991 to make some sequels? But yeah, I guess they just went for it. Uh, they did a twofer, they shot Scanners 2 and 3 back to back. Same director, Christian Duguay. Scanners 2 is... it's an uneven movie. I'd say the first half hour, 40 minutes, uh, I, I had no idea what it was building towards. 
Um, I feel like the main character, he doesn't really get involved in like the main plot until a half an hour in, which was really strange. Like I said, I, I, I just had trouble getting into it. Uh, I put it on late at night, went to bed. Next day I finished it. And it actually gets better as it goes along. Like at a certain point, it's like they realized the movie they were trying to make wasn't really working out. So they just dropped any pretense uh, of trying to make something deeper than a straightforward action movie. And as soon as it becomes that, it does get better. Uh, it just feels a lot more focused from that point on. And then it, it builds to another like scanner versus scanner climax with uh, heads popping and people getting deformed and you know, the stuff you watch a scanner's movie for, kind of. It's not necessarily what you would watch the first movie more for. I just think the story is really well written as well. In Scanners 2, it's story's kind of, well, it's, it's a sequel, so who cares? You know, it's try to do a little story at first, but it's not the best and then when it just becomes like scanner showdowns and yeah shit blowing up uh, that's a good stuff for scanners too like it's kind of a shift in what you've come to expect for a scanners movie and then the movie ends and there's this song over the credits that's so not in line with what i thought scanners was the entire second movie it's still sort of clinging on to the first one. It, it doesn't exist on the same level of quality as the first one, but even the tone is a bit different, but it's not too harsh. And then the song over the end credits, it's like the, the first big tonal shift in the franchise, because it's a song that sounds like it will exist on the soundtrack for Cobra with Sly Stallone. Uh, lyrics that go, in the darkness of the city, <laughs> which is so unscanners but yeah i was into it because yeah i like bad things so based on the goodwill of becoming like a fun trashy action movie in the second half i just dug right into scanners 3 it's called the takeover Released in the same year, uh, same director, different cast. There's like, don't think there's any like recurring plot stuff except for the uh, the medicine that is being used to suppress like, um, you know, scanners get like the sensorial overload when there's a lot of people around. They hear like a bunch of voices and stuff. And uh, there's this drug that's supposed to suppress that called F1, F2, F3. There's different versions in every movie. It's like... For every movie, they introduce a new numerical uh, version of the drug. And in Scanner Street, it's F3, which is kind of like a weird nicotine patch you put in your neck, but it doesn't look like a nicotine patch. It kind of looks like a pog that with a little green light in the middle of it. I feel like Scanner Street, tonally, it exists in the same world as the credits of Scanners 2, in that it is so far removed from what the first movie was doing and it almost becomes a parody. And I mean a parody, like Jesus, the movie starts off and in the opening minutes alone, uh, you've got a guy who's a scanner who's at a Christmas party and he scans a girl's butt 
But I don't mean that, that he, he makes the girl's butt explode, but <laughs> you can tell that her butt was touched with his mind and there's a funny sound effect to go along with it. Which is just like, Jesus, what, what is this movie already? And then the scanner accidentally throws his friend out of the window. His friend who's in a Santa suit, by the way, and he hits the pavement and he's dead and the jingle bells music comes on uh, it's just full-on crazy town from the start uh, it's just unbelievable like it's actually taking the piss out of scanners i can't imagine that that was the intention i mentioned in my letterbox review that i'm really suspecting of christian Duguay of ghost directing this for like i don't know jim winorski or fred Olin ray or Heck, even someone like Rennie Harlan. This is a crazy movie, Scanners 3. I could go on listing just the stupidest crazy stuff. So basically Scanners 3 is about a girl whose father is uh, working on the F3 drug. And she gets the like nicotine patch, pock shaped thing. She puts it in her neck and she basically becomes evil for the rest of the movie, even killing her own father, well, her foster father. Uh, and taking over his company and meanwhile her brother who's the guy who um, you know scanned the girl's butt at the beginning of the Christmas party <laughs> he went off to like Tibet or no I think it's Thailand actually to train his powers at a monastery <laughs> and at one point in the movie they go back to Thailand because the guy needs to come back to stop his sister basically but there's a couple of scenes in Thailand which feel like they come out of, like, Jean-Claude Van Damme's kickboxer, but with scanners. <laughs> so, you know, it's like people getting thrown around, doing high kicks, but also making crazy scanner faces, but, like, seriously crazy deranged scanner faces that you'll have trouble just keeping a straight face yourself. Watching basically all of the scanners movies, well, the not, not the first one necessarily, but as I kept digging into them, I kept thinking to myself, like, imagine watching these movies without, like, the sound cue that comes on when people are scanning. Like, it's this droning, kind of a high-pitched noise to indicate that someone is scanning someone else. And, of course, they make, like, a crazy scanning face, and the person being scanned is also making, like, a crazy face the most perfect exchange of fuck faces imaginable just insane everyone is coming the entire time <laughs> oh, another crazy part in scanners 3 is when so the main lady uh, called helena in the movie she is like trying to work her way up in the company and she's with her boss who is called mark dragon yeah and she's scanning her boss while they're at a restaurant at a business meeting. But she's scanning him to do like a stupid dance that ends in, ends in almost like a striptease. Like they're in a crowded restaurant and there's, and suddenly like this, I don't know, I call it like a public domain electronic conga song comes on and she's making him dance to that. And then when it's over, she just chucks him into the piano and that's, yeah, that's the end of that. She humiliated him and worked her way up, I guess. But it's just also tonally removed from the first movie. It's it's impossible to watch this movie with a straight face. Not just the scanner faces. Like, everything is just 
non-stop insanity, Jesus. Well, obviously, there's some slower parts, but still, on a whole, this movie is just banana town. So, I'd say, watch all of the scanners. Two as, yeah, like I said, it's a pretty uneven movie. Half of it's shit, half of it it's good. Uh, one and three are amazing for completely different reasons. Um, there's actually two more movies after this called Scanner Cop and Scanner Cop 2, aka Scanner Sh the, the Showdown. They were made in the mid 90s, 94, 95, also direct to video. I have seen these movies before, but I'm gonna need like a refresher, but I didn't have time to get to them yet. I remember them being watchable enough for being like direct to video garbage. So yeah, I will be getting to those. Uh, I probably won't address them in another podcast, audio thing, whatever this is. But yeah, that is my take on scanners one through three that's all for me i hope you have a good halloween uh i know i will have already breached like the hundred movie threshold i know i'm insane i have a lot of time to watch movies gotta watch movies 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 fuck it man from carlos Cronenbergian scanners over there in Canada to Veronica, who will be discussing teen age horror movies, teen horrors. Let's go. It's Halloween season, which happens to be one of my favorite seasons, my absolute favorite holiday. This Halloween season, I want to let everyone in on a secret shame of mine, not so secret shame. Not so shameful shame, uh, but an absolute guilty pleasure that I no longer feel shame for. <laughs> I shouldn't have introduced it as a secret shame. My guilty pleasure, to end all guilty pleasures, is teen horror movies. I I devour them. I love them. I don't. They don't need to really be particularly good. I don't even sit there and laugh at them if they're not good. Honestly, I'm not. I don't spite-watch things for the most part, and I certainly don't spite-watch these. I just enjoy how we market horror to teenagers, because we know there's some spillover. We know that there are going to be people like me seeing these movies as well, but it is still for and sort of packaged for teenagers. These actually become very interesting things to watch when you think of it from that perspective. I enjoy teen horror now more as an adult than I did when I was a teen. I watched a lot of it when I was a teen, but I didn't quite understand sort of the whole machinations of something being made for my demographic, something being pointed towards me. We've been seeing a lot of teen horror movies with sizable budgets lately. I think a lot of that has to do with Blumhouse, a lot of their movies. Even if they're not necessarily teen horror movies, they kind of lean to that side. You know, they're not, uh, they're good, they're effective, but they're not necessarily 
complicated. You know, they're not something where you have to look for a ton of symbolism or you get to the end and go like, oh, my God, what happened? I don't understand it. It's, you know, it's pretty straightforward. It's like watching Final Destination or something. Nobody gets to the end of that movie and is like, oh, what? Did they they raise the king of hell? What's going on? You know, it's pretty much we're just here for the killing. So to that note, there was a Blumhouse movie this year that didn't do super well, and I'm not even going to say that I liked it, but I do want to talk about Truth or Dare. Something really weird has been going on ever since Mexico. Oh, come on. I'm serious. I'm seeing things. <laughs> Truth or Dare? Dare. I know it sounds insane. Just a little. This fine young lady here dared me to show you my business. Seen it before, not impressed. Carter said, tell the truth or you die. Do the dare or you die. Refuse to play. You know what? Screw this. And you die. We're not playing the game. It's playing us. So what do we do? Only choose truth. Now, Truth or Dare is a movie that I wish could have operated solely on plot. This is something I love about a lot of Mexican horror and sci-fi movies, is that sometimes they'll come up with a great plot that they can't explain, so they don't. They just have this wonderful plot, and maybe at the end have someone go like, oh, it's the rain. You know, it doesn't even matter. They just want, they're gonna operate solely on plot, and they do, and it's great. Truth or dare, sadly, tried very hard to explain its plot and it gets so silly you know you're you're willing to kind of believe this first part where there's this supernatural game of truth or dare going on and you have to play it when it comes up to you or you die and it's going to make you do things you do not want to do that this whole chunk right in the middle was great i was so into it the end is all them trying to solve it and explain it and uh you know, and I, I guess I can't really ask for a movie to just stop. You know, it's got to have some sort of conclusion, but that gets very painful. I do want to at least uh, sort of give a shout-out, I suppose, to Lucy Hale, because I was referring to her as Selena Gomez, um, unbeknownst that I, I, you know, I can't... I have never seen... Pretty Little Liars. I had to pause this recording and look that up because I couldn't remember the show she was in that everyone kept saying, like, you don't know who that is? You didn't watch Pretty Little Liars? No, I didn't. Uh, But I just, I kept calling her Selena Gomez and then watched the movie and actually I was quite struck by her performance. I thought there was a, an excellent uh, sort of dynamic, like, central dynamic between her and her best friend, played by Violet Bean, who I do not know at all. Um, My apologies to Miss Bean. But they are two friends that have been friends for a very, very long time, and they're kind of at each other's throats at a lot of points in the movie, and I genuinely believed it. I believed it as a friendship that has been around forever and probably isn't going anywhere, but is also kind of strained, kind of tense. They're they're both tired of each other's 
you know, personalities, basically. Lucy Hale's character is always getting accused of being too nice, trying to be, like, too helpful to people, and therefore kind of causing more problems. You know, it's not just like, oh, I'm such a saint. Um, Violet being Marky, I believe is her name in the movie. Uh, She is a little bit more, she's someone who's kind of out for herself. I identified more with that character, for sure. She's someone who kind of wants to do what she wants to do. She's sort of inconsistent with that, also wants certain things that you have to give up doing what you want for. But So they had a good, tense, believable relationship through the whole movie. I, I think people oftentimes, I've said this when I was talking about remakes, that oftentimes people dismiss things altogether. They just go like, it got crap reviews, it's crap. It is. I'm not I'm not even here to argue that. But sometimes you watch these crap things and get these really interesting moments out of it. And I thought that relationship, the acting between those two, the chemistry between those two characters was impressive. I gen I was like, I wish you guys were in a better movie. Lucy Hale, I hope you do great things. Uh and I promise I'll see them and know who you are this time. We're going to slide a little back in time to a considerably more innocent year. Usually usually that's just a saying, but that feels real now. Uh, 2000, you know, so it's even like pre-9-11, a considerably more innocent year, where Brittany Murphy, <laughs> be still my heart, we miss you so hard, Brittany, starred in a movie called Cherry Falls. Twenty-five years ago, a horrible crime was committed in the town of Cherry Falls. Now... You haven't heard about Rod and Stacy? Did they break up? Break up! Wake up! They're dead! Four teenagers have been killed. A fifth viciously attacked. All victims appeared to be... virgins. Everyone's decided to take themselves off the endangered species list and have sex. I need to ask you a personal question. About how far you've gone, base-wise? Can you go further? Now, this is such a wonderful teen movie because it seems like it was written by a teenager. And I like this movie. I won't even, I'm not even going to look up the score on Rotten Tomatoes, which I sometimes do for these podcasts, just to be like, listen how ridiculous this movie, this Lindsay Lohan movie I love is. But I'm not even going to look it up. I don't care what anyone else's opinion is. I love this movie. I love Brittany Murphy. But what's ridiculous about this movie is that it's a, a serial killer is targeting virgins. Uh, not just virgin women. Um, I haven't seen it in a couple of years, but I do remember there being some male victims. Uh, and, of course, you know, this is pretty deep into the movie at this point, so spoilers. Uh, but, of course, what the killer, part of what the killer is trying to do is get all these kids to have a mass orgy, which of course is what a bunch of teenagers who find out a serial killer targeting virgins is in their town are gonna do. And it's not even that ridiculous. I feel like it sounds more ridiculous the way I'm saying it. Um, I can't promise that this is accurate, but there is a, the very last shot of the movie made me think of Twin Peaks. 
I can't promise that that will ring true for anyone else, but it does have this kind of, you know, it's a sort of small, isolated town. Uh, it's in Virginia, so it doesn't really have the Twin Peaks look, but it is this kind of small, isolated town where weird stuff is going on, and then it has this one last, final, surreal shot of a waterfall. And it's... I mean, the movie... I feel like Cherry Falls might have even been like a snakes on a plane thing where they might have put that as a, a placeholder title and then been like, oh, my God, we're shooting this and we didn't come up with a better name than Cherry Falls. Did a 15-year-old boy come up with that? But it's still, it it makes enough sense that you kind of allow it. And, of course, it's got Brittany Murphy and she's amazing. So I do recommend this one. I'm not going to be like, oh, yeah, go see Truth or Dare, go rent it. But if you can come across Cherry Falls, I would say give it a watch. A quick interesting note to end on. Uh, this is something I didn't know until I opened the Wikipedia page so that I would be able to access information about this. But apparently... Cherry Falls was submitted to and rejected by the MPAA numerous times. It was never picked up for theatrical distribution and was purchased by USA Films, who telecast it for the first time on July 29, 2000. I 100% saw this movie on TV, so that makes sense, but I didn't know that, and now we all know it. Even further back in time now, by a whole four years, it's the mother of all screen of all teen movies. I think that people might debate that, but I would say that this one, this one certainly uh, has something that a lot of other teen movies don't. And we're talking about Scream, of course. Scream was probably one of the first like real horror movies I saw. I think I was ten or eleven when I saw it. I remember it scaring me. Uh, it's a movie that at this point I've seen so many times. I will. I saw it at the Castro a couple of years ago and had never seen it on the big screen and was definitely thinking to myself, like, this, if I had never seen this movie, this would really, this would still scare me. It's just very, very well made. We all know that. But why it sort of becomes such a crown jewel when we're talking about teen horror movies is that it was this very sarcastic sort of... Uh, uh, knowing meta horror movie. All the kids knew, you know, with the formula for horror movies, they knew what you did to survive as the opposite in Cherry Falls, right? You have to be a virgin to survive in most horror movies, not in that one. But you can't do drugs, you can't drink, you can't say, I'll be right back. You know, they have the very famous and very wonderful scene of Randy going through what all the rules are and being like, oh, never say I'll be right back. You know, that's that's signing your death warrant. He doesn't say that. But so it becomes a, a spoof in a weird way that is still very, very frightening. Uh, it's not that unusual of a plot, right? It's a guy with a mask, two guys with masks killing people. When I saw this when I was 10, 10 or 11, the people in it seemed very old to me. Teenagers seemed very old to me. And I didn't quite, it didn't quite sink in that, you know, teenagers being killed were 
people not much older than me. When I saw this movie again, after having not seen it for quite some time, at around 22-ish, maybe I think I was out of college, so maybe 23, I was kind of struck by how young the people looked. And it started to occur to me that teen horror movies do feature children getting killed. <laughs> they they tend to feature high school kids getting killed. And I just started to think of how protective we are of children in general, uh, and then so sort of careless <laughs> towards teen lives. People won't watch movies where kids die. You know how there's that website like Does the Dog Die? People like that with kids. People, you know, will be very upset when a 10-year-old dies, an 11-year-old, but a 13-year-old, <laughs> fuck them. So it is kind of funny. That's, you know, simplifying, of course. But it is kind of funny to see that there is this this brashness towards teen lives and then this sort of coddling of, of child lives, at least in when people are going into things for entertainment value. So teen movies do feature dead kids. And Scream is a movie that every time I watch it, and at every stage in my life at which I watch it, at which I watch it, it highlight something new every time. I don't even say like, oh, I see something new in it. It just makes me think something new each time I see it because I tend to see it, you know, I'll wait a few years and watch it again. And seeing it when you're 10 and seeing it when you're 15 and then seeing it when you're 22 or 23, you do kind of start to take a step away from the barbarity of horror, you know, in that we are entertaining ourselves with really gruesome things and scream can do that scream can make horror seem very real it it makes you really think about these kids being killed i think wes craven was a director who that's kind of what he was good at doing you know he would have these movies that were just all out you know, everyone's going to get killed, get ready for it. But even in the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, especially the first one, you kind of feel each kid that dies. You know, it is upsetting. It's not just like the kids go about their day. Uh, so I think that's what Scream... Scream has this ability to be both this very meta-horror movie, very aware of itself, and still be very real. And I think that's a tough thing to do. On to our final movie, a movie I just saw for the first time recently, Jennifer's Body. Chip is looking really cute to me lately. How is he tasting these days? You are never a good friend. You could have anybody that you want. Why Chip? You're killing people. No, I'm killing boys. Are you scared? I you only murdered boys. I go both ways. I will finish you if I have to, okay? You can barely finish gym class. Written by Diablo Cody, uh, who I, I do love young adult, uh, but I was never really a fan of Juno. So, you know, I guess at this point, I 
kind of like one of her movies and really like young adults. So I do kind of like Jennifer's body. I do will admit to that. Is It's definitely... The movies were planned out for this podcast, sort of serious to spoofy. And I did put this one after Scream because I think Scream had... Uh, it had more of a a grip on reality. This movie is ridiculous, and it just continues to get more ridiculous. And there's some very, very funny parts. There's nothing particularly... There are some gruesome scenes, there are some gross scenes, but there's nothing really that scary. She does... Uh, Jennifer is possessed by a demon. She does tend to go after men. I might find this scarier if I was a guy. Maybe it is a movie that just it didn't have anything particularly scary for me, but I don't really think... I don't think men are actually threatened by someone like Megan Fox. You know, I think even if she was a soul-sucking demon, they'd probably take the risk. So I think at the end of the day, she's just not... Even when she's supernatural, she's not super threatening. But it is... It has its moments. It certainly is kind of a funny... A uh, weird movie, and I love Amanda Siegfried, and I think she is sort of like the quintessential teen. She's someone I know she's an adult now, but I almost want her to keep playing teen roles because she just, she just has like the face for it. She has like these big wide eyes, and she looks like someone animated a Disney princess, you know. So she'll, she's this like kind of little quiet nerdy character, and she's got glasses, and you know she just. She's still beautiful, but she you, you believe it more than, you know, if Megan Fox was supposed to be some, like, nerdy, shy character, you'd be like, shut up. Don't, don't lie to me. But Amanda Siegfried sells it, and she's, you know, got a boyfriend, and they're kind of thinking about going all the way. And it's just a very funny, funny sort of little movie that I know didn't do very well. According to Wikipedia, the opening box office uh, was 2.8 million on its open day, opening day, and 6.8 million its opening weekend. So they refer to that as lackluster. That's you know unfortunate, but I don't. I could see how people might not have been that into it. It does strike me as a sort of niche film, uh, which are things that I like, so I'm glad that these things get made, because then at least, you know, I can watch them. And of course, the wonderful thing about all teen horror movies is sort of seeing how poorly or well they target teens, and to kind of be like, oh, so this is what's going on in the teen world now. That's... I... I still think Lucy Hale's Selena Gomez, so clearly I don't know. But it is just funny to see something like Cherry Falls or something like Jennifer's Body, uh, specifically because those ones are so sex-heavy, <laughs> that it's they still have to appeal to this group. They, you know, they're making this movie that they want to make money, but they gotta they gotta get the money out of teenagers. So how do you make teenagers go see something? And sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't, but I think Carl Reiner's the one that said, nobody knows what they're doing in Hollywood, that's why there's so many bad movies. So, if it's teen horror, it doesn't matter if it's good or bad, I'll still go see it, and I'll still talk about it, and I'll still tell all the people to go see it, and they'll ignore me, but that's just the rich tradition of Halloween. 
from teen horror movies where some had a comedic bent, we now throw back to an earlier era of comedy with Jenna, who will take it away now. Ah, yes, Halloween. Tis the season for tricks and treats, ghosts and ghouls, cats and bats, mice and vice, Dracula and talking smackula. Okay, well, the point is that this is the time of year where everybody movie obsessive that I know spends the entire month watching their favorite spooky movies. And I, meanwhile, as a total wuss, do not. My relationship to scary movies is kind of, uh, I'd say, particular. (laughs) Uh, There's a lot of uh, scary movies I love for sure. Uh, I mean, typically when a movie has more to it besides just jump scares, I'm all about it. Even if it scares the pants off of me. Like, don't don't get me wrong. It's not that I'm so pretentious. I need everything to be a lofty metaphor for life or whatever you have. Those sidebar I might. I just know that uh, I'm going to have a hard time sleeping either way. <laughs> so I try and pick and choose particular scary movies in an attempt to get as much bang for my buck, if you know what I mean. But uh, at the end of the day, I'm basically just like a puss in boots about the whole thing. And I tend to uh, not really subject myself to being uh, unable to sleep. Um, So in that spirit, I'm going to cater to those poor fools out there who, like me, enjoy everything Halloween has to offer except for that feeling of impending doom. So what better to look to than uh, 1950s horror comedies? Ah, the 1950s, a time when comedy was clean, women knew their place, emotions were outlawed, and everything was a big fat lie. The good old days. So first up, in my double feature here for Halloween horror comedies, we are going to start with uh, Abbott and Costello, the famed 1950s comedy duo. You may have heard about Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, which came out in 1948 and launched a whole series of these horror comedy films for them. Uh, It's pretty well known, I've found out, actually, because this isn't really my genre, but uh, I think Quentin Tarantino brought it up and i guess a bunch of people have seen it um it has bella lugosi it has all of the big uh, you know it has like the the wolfman all this stuff anyhow we're not talking about that movie because uh, it's been pretty widely covered and it's not in the 50s so let's look to the sequel which is abbott and costello meet the invisible man <laughs> Don't give me that invisible stuff again. Honest. And there were footsteps with no feet. And a grip that was unpacking itself. All right, boys, let's go. The plot of this movie is rather simple. Abbott and Costello both graduate from private high school, only to have the first client that walks into their office be a man who is publicly wanted for murder. His name is Tommy, and he persuades them to bring him back to his fiancé's house, where her uncle just so happens to live and slash developed a serum that turns guinea pigs invisible. Why this guy has a full lab in this mansion he lives in with his niece, I cannot say. Uh, I'm sure that there was some dialogue that gave a flimsy reason for why any of this exists, but I'm going to level with you. I don't remember. (laughs) Uh, I didn't watch this that long ago, but, uh, you know, anyhow. 
doesn't matter. This doctor warns that the serum is currently irreversible. He has, needs more time to work on the, the cure. And uh, the longer you stay invisible, the more manic you become until you die as a raving invisible lunatic. So Tommy is like, sweet, sign me up. But his fiance and her uncle are like, nah, don't do that. It's bad. So, of course, when the cops come a-knockin', Tommy sneaks into the lab and injects himself with that sweet, sweet potion, causing many a hijink to ensue, with Abbott and Costello bumbling around trying to make a quick buck by turning Tommy into the police, except now Tommy is invisible, and uh, I think it is Costello sees him turn from a visible man into an invisible man as he takes all of his clothing off <laughs> in front of him, and uh, he is scarred for life. So Tommy, you know, now realizing the power he wields as a naked, invisible man, takes him hostage, and then the movie takes a turn to boxing. <laughs> yeah, all right, because Tommy's a boxer, and he's sure his opponent killed his manager and then framed him, which explains his whole murder thing. So now it's up to Lou Costello to pretend to be a champion boxer while Tommy quite literally shadow boxes for him. The rest of his movie... Uh, I want to say a good hour, uh, you know, the rest of this movie is just about boxing, <laughs> boxing matches and boxing gags and boxing murders. It's downright not spooky whatsoever. So as far as it being a quote horror movie, I'm giving this one out of like 10 spooky ghosts uh, for the comedy half. Well, there's some gags that are here that are pretty funny. They're okay. Um, I'm not the biggest Abbott and Costello fan, but, uh, I, I can, I get it. You know, they're, they're, they're amusing. Um, I liked, uh, some bits where Costello is continually being sent to the psychiatrist because he's so horrified that he's talking about invisible men. Everyone thinks he's crazy. And, and then they try to hypnotize him and it doesn't work on him whatsoever. And he ends up hypnotizing his doctor and most of the police station as they walk in trying to see where everybody else went. So that was pretty funny. I got a kick out of how uh, Invisible Tommy gets increasingly more erratic and angry, but it's a lot of chair throwing and stolen food and, you know, smacking people when they're not looking kind of slapstick gags. So that was pretty amusing. Uh, I also liked Abbott pretending to be Costello's boxing manager, where he talks up Costello's skills as he very lazily pretends to be hitting things as Tommy invisibly is doing all the actual hitting behind him. Start working on him. Uh, just a minute, chum. This butterball can smear you all over the map. Oh, bud, don't say that. And I'll repeat it. He can smear you all over the map. That's it. Steam him up, bud. And while he's doing that, what do you think I'll be doing? Smear my map all over the place. You said it. Now, both of you, shove off. Shove off? That's sailor talk. Yeah, like taking a dive. Listen, I... nobody has to take a dive for me. I can whip anybody my weight. That includes you. Uh... But let us smear your map all over the place. All in all, not great, not bad, but definitely not spooky. <laughs> Though the last minute of this movie somehow has Costello getting the invisible treatment, and then his legs uh, come uh, like appear backward on his torso, and that's pretty terrifying. But again... One out of ten spooky ghosts. Next up for second billing, I present to you Scared Stiff with uh, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. Now, uh, if you follow me on Letterboxd or if we've spoken in the last couple of months and you made the mistake of asking me what I've been watching lately, 
You will know that I just recently watched every single Martin and Lewis movie over the summer, and it may or may not have snowballed into a bizarre monster that has taken over more of my life than I'm willing to admit. Uh, more about that in an upcoming article. Check the site, backdashrow.com. But anyhow, my favorite movie of theirs um, just so happened to be a horror comedy that concludes with a spooky gothic mansion in a swamp, which is full of ghosts and murder. You're not going up there, are you, Larry? Of course I am. You could stay here if you wanted. But if a couple of guys come running down here in a few minutes, let the first one go by. That'll be me. Yeah, well, if anyone passes you, that'll be me. Us. We know better. Yeah, we know better. You go around that way, I'll go this way, we'll get him in between us. Oh, goody. Away. Bye. Bye. Scared Stiff is actually a remake of 1940s The Ghost Breakers, which is another horror comedy that starred uh, Bob Hope and Paulette Goddard. In this movie, in Scared Stiff, Dean Martin is a nightclub singer who gets framed for murder, the polka dot scarf murder which is the best name for a murder I've ever heard, uh, after he ends up at the wrong place at the wrong time and happens to leave his scarf there. Actually, he was uh, there in a hotel to face the music after he made out with a mob boss's girlfriend, and then he didn't realize that his loyal friend Jerry Lewis was already there trying to fix everything for him. And meanwhile, in the next room, there's a woman named Mary... Uh, who's getting ready to go to Cuba and inherit her family's gothic swamp mansion. Uh, however, ever since she booked her ticket, she is receiving death threats uh, to telling her to stay away from the place, which then culminates in an actual death in her hotel, which is how she meets Dean Martin when he hides in her room thinking the murderer is after him, and he leaves a scarf there, and then the cops come, he has to jump in her luggage. Convoluted story, fast forward. He ends up sneaking onto her boat in her huge luggage in order to get away from the cops and the mob, both of whom are looking to pummel him. <laughs> uh, Jerry Lewis sneaks aboard the ship as well once he realizes what's happening, and once they're both in safe in international waters, they decide to make a quick buck and put on a bunch of uh, cruise ship stage shows with the actual Carmen Miranda. So not so fun fact, this was unfortunately her last movie before she died unfortunately for her death and maybe also for the movie after a bunch of wacky shows including dean martin in a ruffle sleeved outfit and jerry lewis and carmen miranda drag and a handful of death threats towards mary and a song about making enchiladas we eventually end up with dean and jerry agreeing to accompany mary to her spooky mansion so she doesn't get murdered alone very nice of those boys okay now finally the horror aspects show up with a disneyland style haunted mansion it is full of gothic ghosts, a creepy zombie stalker, moving objects, crystal coffins, black lace gowns, trap doors, and a crazy organ that holds a secret key. So basically, that's a moray. After a handful of stinkers, Martin Lewis brought in Norman Lear and Ed Simmons to punch up the script here, uh, both of whom actually got their start on the, Co the Colgate Comedy Hour, which was Martin Lewis's TV show. And boy, howdy does it work. I like this movie. <laughs> if you couldn't tell, it has everything I want in a 1950s horror comedy. 
Uh, I also really like that this one feels super even as far as uh, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis goes. Um, a lot of their movies ended up being very Jerry heavy, especially towards the end because he started to maybe become an egomaniac. But for this one, Dean Martin gets a bunch of genuinely funny one-liners. He gets some really good, fun songs and uh, a chance to show off his comedic talents. Just an average girl. Honey, if you're an average girl, I've been going out with boys. Jerry Lewis also actually made me laugh, which is not doesn't always happen <laughs> a handful of times here. Between uh, this speech he gives to himself in the mirror trying to... Uh, gain courage to confront these mob bosses. Who are you, Dr. Coffee Nerds? No, I am the voice of your conscience. You're not gonna run out on Larry, are you? Remember, he's your best friend, and he's in trouble. Now you go in there and show that gang that you're just as tough as they are. I can't go in there and fight that whole mob. They got guns. You can get a gun. They got blackjacks. You can get a blackjack. They got big, strong muscles. You can get a black jack. Also, his running around like a small dog as Dean Martin sings Bongo Bingo is pretty funny. Uh, and in general, their chemistry as they get to perform their bits on the stage shows is really funny. You really get to see what made them such a you know smash hit of the 1950s comedy uh, by seeing just their chemistry together. And the fact that all of this culminates in a bunch of really dorky horror tropes is just the cherry on top for me. Two out of ten spooky ghosts for the scare factor here. Uh, but if you have any interest in Martin and Lewis, I would definitely recommend checking out this one above the others. It's silly. It's stupid. It's exactly what I wanted out of a 1950s horror comedy. Uh, the fact that none of the plot gets resolved whatsoever except for the scary mansion is also kind of perfect. It was really like inconsequential. Uh, oh, and there's um there's a five second cameo of Hope and Crosby in this movie that is all at once ridiculous and very spooky. So you have to check that out if you have any interest in those guys. Uh, so yeah, there you go. Enjoy being able to sleep this October. You say bingo, 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 Go where the gang go, bingo, 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 movies mutilation decapitation torture does that sound entertaining hello and welcome to my section of today's podcast about horror movies and october and everything spooky scary and fun this episode i had planned on potentially doing a whole segment based on shot on video horror movies now I'm no expert, I've seen a lot, and I know some of the history, but it might not be the best place to do that kind of an in-depth discussion. 
So instead, I'm going to highlight a few movies that you may or may not have seen on the rental store walls when you were growing up. Whether or not they were shot on video, it's not necessarily why I'm talking about these movies in particular. I want to talk about why I find them interesting, why they are fun and weird and exciting to me, and why that particular period of movie rental history fascinates me. Are your kids renting a movie this weekend? Horror films like these are the most popular choice. Graphic orgies of blood and violence. And they watch 15 murders in an hour and a half. Children mesmerized. I like the gore. <laughs> but are they harmless? But the kids are watching VCR horrors. So to do as quick a history lesson as I can on this type of movie, in the early 80s, we had a lot of slasher movies that were coming out of the world of exploitation and into the mainstream. We saw stuff like 1978's Halloween, 1981's Friday the 13th. Those made big bucks in the theatrical world. And of course, because of this, a lot of people got the idea that they were gonna start making their own slasher movies. As the 80s started, um, we saw the video technology become more and more readily available to your maybe not necessarily average Joe, but people that had money to spend. So uh, we saw a lot of these, you know, VHS camcorders, beta camcorders. And so as the 80s came underfoot, we saw movies that were being shot on those cameras by horror fans, usually people that were very ambitious, had a lot of love for the genre, started making their own movies in their backyards, started making their own companies to distribute these films, and because the video boom was such an exciting moment, we needed things to fill those shelves. We wanted movies, we wanted to rent movies, and so rental stores wanted as much as they could to put on those shelves, and they wanted horror movies because those rented like hotcakes. So this led to movies like Boarding House, which was an SOV shot on video film that actually played very briefly theatrically. It led to movies like Sledgehammer, which actually came out a year before Blood Cult, which is what some people generally believe as being the first shot on video horror movie, but Sledgehammer is actually the one that is considered to be the the original. Um, it also led to stuff like The Ripper, which had uh, Tom Savini involved, and it led to things like the video violence films, which were directly advertised towards video rental consumers with taglines like, could this happen at your video store when renting is not enough? So it became big business to have your shot on video movies on the shelves. It became big business to have any horror movie on the shelves. So the movies I want to talk about today were those kinds of movies, um, and they are ones that I find particularly interesting. So I'm very excited that my first film I'm going to talk about today is Canadian, and I am Canadian. Uh, and this was a film that went straight to video in 1989. It was shot on 8mm film. IMDb lists 16mm film as well. I'm not 100% sure about that. But it is Things from 1989. Things, a horrifying sensation. 
Things was filmed in Scarborough, Ontario, and is one of those films that I like to call Brain Melters. It starts with a dream sequence. It has very ridiculous characters saying ridiculous things. It has a newscaster that we come back to every once in a while um, to just fill you in with some information because the plotting of this film is unbelievable. But the general gist of the film is that we follow these two hoser-esque characters in a house. They're drinking beer, they're eating food, they're having weird discussions, and eventually they come face-to-face with quote-unquote things, which we saw at the beginning of the film in a dream sequence where a woman in a mask is doing stuff with a baby carriage and is giving birth to something. It's all very weird, and the aforementioned TV segments uh, star Amber Lynn, a porn star at the time, and this is one of her first non-pornographic films. So we see this kind of monster come out of one of the character's wife, and it just becomes a brain melter. That's all I can say. It's it's unbelievable. It is unthinkable. It is unrateable. It is wonderful. It makes me proud to be Canadian. It is so weird. It is so amazing. If you haven't seen things from 1989, you really need to see it. It is a one of a kind experience that you will never forget. It will melt your mind. It will leave you changed. And I hope you like it. So from things, we move on to mutilations. This astronomer. Stories go back to ancient biblical times, indicating that perhaps life forms from other worlds had visited, even walked the earth. Something bothers me, Professor. What do these life forms be like? Could they be non-human? It was once a cow. They're spaceships from another world. And the creatures that paddled them, they look like demons out of hell. I know. I seen him. Mutilations is a 1986 film shot on video in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and there was some special effects scenes, I believe, shot in Houston, Texas, and it was directed by Larry Thomas, also written by, and is about a high school science field trip that goes awry when an alien shows up and starts stalking everybody. And it is much like things, in my opinion, a must see. It has everything that I want out of this kind of movie. And I mean everything. First of all, running time, barely over an hour, (laughs) which is so good. Surprising ambition. I love when these movies that are shot on video feel like a passion project, feel like something that the people involved with were really excited about, and it really shows on screen in mutilations. The sets are gnarly. There are these big glowing lights in all the scenes. You know, there's tons of fog. Uh, There's stop-motion monsters for the aliens. Um, the, the, The actors involved all give incredibly bizarre line readings. They feel like they don't know how to properly pace their their lines, so you end up with these 
discussions that have pauses in it like that. <laughs> um, the only thing that really drags this movie down is there's a couple scenes where the dialogue is a bit uh, extended, where they dump a lot of exposition that they kind of need to get the plot moving along on the viewer. But other than that, this movie is a huge hit. I think it plays so well with friends. I really admire everything about Mutilations from 1987. And finally, on my three movie tour through the video store of my memory is Haunted Ween. Welcome to the house of horror. Yes, Haunted Ween, the film from Bowling Green, Kentucky, seemingly shot by a frat house. This movie is wonderful. I got to see this on the big, big screen at a drive-in in in Hamilton, Ontario a couple weeks ago, thanks to Hamilton Trash Cinema, which was so great. This is directed by W. Doug Robertson, a.k.a. Doug Robertson, uh, also written by and stars a bunch of seemingly local talent uh, as a frat house who needs some money and were given permission to use this old house as a fundraiser, but it turns out, as us the viewer saw in the opening, 20 years ago an accident happened at that house, um, and it's possible that maybe the person involved is back and taking matters into his own hands. And so this ends up just setting up these hilarious and terrible frat dudes who are disgusting, but one of them is speaking in one of the most ridiculous accents you will ever hear. This letter I read was really important. Let's get to the problem. We are going down unless we find some money fast. Man, I wrote him a letter told him we were having a few problems. Well, Hanks, what did you say in the letter? To whom it may concern. Man, we're having a few problems. Sincerely, Hank's treasure. Man, I don't know how you came to be treasure. Hell, listen, you nominated me. I did? I did that? Hey, let's have a car wash. Oh, man, I hate to wash my own car, much less somebody else's. Let's steal a car and sell it. Guys, guys, the last time we had a car wash, we only made $120. We can rake the neighbor's leaves. It's that time of year. Man, we're not in college to work. We're in college to use our minds. Let's rob a liquor store. Everybody does it. And so they all decide they're going to set up a haunted house on Haunted Ween, as the song says, and murders begin, and it just becomes so ridiculous, and there's a moment where the murderer pops up and bonks two people's heads together. That made me want to give it five stars right there. But... There is that kind of feeling that I mentioned earlier where there was some love put into this thing. Everyone seems to be having a lot of fun. And the ending is kind of amazing. The way that they dispose of the villain and then the final shocking moment that you get with all of these kinds of slasher movies where is 
the murderer really dead question mark here is kind of amazing. What they do really worked for me. My friend and I, Taylor, we like looked at each other and we're like, oh my God, at the end of this movie. And it really works and it's super entertaining and it's just fun. And you don't see a lot of that with some of these movies, they become slog. Some of them become, you know, just hard to get through. And I didn't find that with this at all. It's if you're a fan of the slasher genre where hanging out with idiots doesn't make you not want to watch the movie, because make no mistake, the frat guys in this movie are terrible. But it was really entertaining, I found. So Haunted Ween from 1991 you should probably check this out. It's kind of interesting that it came out in 1991 because that's just a little bit late in that slasher period. And I think maybe that's why this one doesn't get as much um, renewed interest. And as a bonus, after you watch Haunted Ween, which I will mention is such a stupid name. Nobody seemed to have thought that through. Haunted Ween. After you watch it, go to YouTube. There is a almost full length documentary on the making of that you can watch. It's really cool, and you should check it out. Haunted Ween 1991. And thus concludes my trip through video store memories. You should check these movies out. I would love to know if uh, anyone wants to email the back row email. Let us know what movies you remember so fondly from your video store of your youth. And keep checking out those dusty shelves and watching super fun horror movies. Goodbye. I like the uh, gore. <laughs> I love blood and guts and stuff, you know. It, it turns on it turns me on, you know, ever since I was a little kid. <laughs> I love I love the feeling of being scared, you know. As always, remember you can find us at Back Row Cineblog on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter. You can go to backdashrow.com. You can email us at Back Row Cinema blog at gmail.com thank you again to veronica thank you to jenna for making the website making this podcast possible thank you to carlo for his contributions and uh we will thank you the listeners for listening to our hour and ten long hour and ten long i'm not even gonna edit that that's so stupid hour and ten minute long Halloween spectacular. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.